Thanks, Angela, and uh, the choir. Well done. Sets the table for us nicely. Let's have a word of prayer. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Guess who's coming to dinner? One reliable feature of Matthew's parables, you may have noticed, is that a a familiar scene from life is presented. Working in a vineyard, preparing for a wedding banquet, getting invited to a party you don't want to attend. In each parable, the familiar uh, scene, at least certainly familiar at the time, but that the point is familiar to us. Um, in each parable, the familiar scene points to something transcendent and eternally significant. And then we get this parable, which is a horse of a different color. It presents us with a decidedly different opening scene. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and so on and so on. It does not take place in this world as we know it. It does not uh, take place in the present tense, but in the time between this life and the next. Like the other parables, though, It is a meditation on the character of the kingdom of God. And like the others, it is about judgment, as in final judgment. To be sorted as a sheep is to be given life. To be sorted as a goat is to be sentenced to hell. It not only starts differently, this parable, it reverses the way the other parables work. This one starts with a transcendent and otherworldly setting. It begins with the end, and then it points to the familiar and the everyday existence that all of us have, namely the existence that we share with our neighbors who are lacking, with those who are hungry, thirsty, lacking in clothing, are sick, or in prison, a stranger. And the parable clearly says that this everyday stuff, how we regard and relate to these people who are all around us, has great import right now. Right now it does. It has eternal significance. It is the basis for whether you are a sheep or a goat. So part of our reaction may be, oh, so that's how we'll be judged. So it's not about how much I went to church or how moral of a person I was. It's not about whether I always told the truth and prayed a lot, et cetera, et cetera. It may come as a relief to some people. According to Matthew, it boils down to one thing, and this is no small thing. Compassion. Compassion toward those in particular who need it 
the most. The poor, the sick, the incarcerated, the people at the margins of society. And if this is how we're judged, then that means this is a God. That means that this tells us who God is, and that is good news for us in this sense. He is the kind of God who cares about those sorts of folks, the down-and-outers, the ones the world wants to forget and tries very hard to forget. This is a God with heart, a God with heart. This is a God, frankly, you can believe in, a God you can trust. There is good news here, despite the ominous nature of this parable. But that isn't half of it. And our skit really brought this out. To this point, the message is very consistent in many ways with world religions, um, which have always drawn our attention to act charitably toward those who live at the margins. In this parable, however, there is a game changer that no one saw coming. Did you catch it? Neither the sheep nor the goats caught it. They didn't understand what Jesus was talking about when he said, I was hungry and you gave me food. Or didn't. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Or didn't. I was sick and you took care of me. Or didn't. I was in prison and you visited me. Or didn't. And of course, the response to this on on both sides is, Oh, Lord, when did we see you in prison, etc., etc.? Again, kind of like our skit. That was you. Uh, when, did, when did we see you in prison? So Jesus elaborates, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you've done it to me. What? Jesus has identified with these people? Now, when you think about it, he kind of did right from the very start, didn't he? Take a closer look at Mary and Joseph. What does this mean for us? Quite a bit, I think. Um, Many will say, um, as they dig in their heels, my relationship with God is uh, separate from my relationship to the world around me especially those I don't even know. Then along comes Matthew 25, which tells us in no uncertain terms, the world around you that is in need is your relationship with God. That's where the incarnate God is in the person of Jesus. And again, many will say, my relationship with God is separate from my relationship to the world. The world is lost. It belongs to the forces of darkness. Can't you see that? Or maybe less dramatically, at least, the world belongs pretty much to Washington and to Wall Street. Not God. Separate the two, please. And along comes Matthew 25, which tells us the world and everything in it belongs to God. It is being redeemed by God. And it not only includes the ones the world has forgotten, the poor, the marginalized, the incarcerated, it begins with them. 
And many will say, but many of those people living in poverty, those in prison, well, how do we put this? They, they made their choices in life. They're, many of them, morally compromised. They lack initiative. They reap what they sow, right? Is the care of the sick really my business? And strangers, how can you ever trust strangers, let alone welcome them? The truth is, we often like to play the judge who separates the sheep and the goats in our world. And when we do, guess who the goats often are? The poor, the incarcerated, the strangers, predictably the least of these. And along comes Matthew 25, where Jesus says, I am in solidarity with those very people. You disown them, you disown me. I've pitched my tent with them. And that's why this parable, one of the reasons it's scary for us, maybe particularly in this country where we have our own twist on being a Christian nation where uh, our residents routinely blame the poor for being responsible for their poverty, um, which is something, by the way, you don't very often uh, read about in, in the good book. And of course, perhaps it is no wonder the Protestant work ethic and the gospel of prosperity, both highly American ideas, hold that economic prosperity is tied to the quality of one's faith and spiritual state. It's baked in the very fabric of our society. So if one is a good Christian, one will be blessed economically is the assumption that may take hold. So wealth is validation of one's good relationship with God. It stands to reason then by this way of thinking that for those who have little, well, they're standing before God might be a little suspect. And along comes Matthew 25. Now, I know that um, some who are listening may feel this is less relevant because our daily lives don't include many who are living in poverty or in prison or a stranger. But that's the point, isn't it? An insulated life quickly becomes an unfaithful one. We are called to the margins some way, somehow. If we don't find ourselves there very often, well, again, I think that's the point. If we are not collectively as a people addressing those at the margins, we are not heeding Jesus' words today. These verses have uh, many personal implications for us. On the personal side, an organization like Parenting with Purpose, and we heard that referenced in the skit, provides opportunities for any of us to encounter God. It's not just the families, it's God, remember, through the families of incarcerated persons. Kid Pack invites us to know families on the north side that are struggling with poverty, to encounter God through them. Mission trips always bring us into relationships with folks that we'd never otherwise know and in its own way, home free, uh, also brings us into relationships with folks who are marginalized. So many ways people are marginalized. There are, in fact, countless ways for us to encounter the living God through those at the margins. Uh, 
it usually begins with baby steps. One opportunity, one person. But the public dimension cannot be ignored, namely how we regard those at the margins through public policy and the marketplace. Our neglect is quite apparent here, even though we're not uh, necessarily in agreement how we would go about addressing it. Recently, it's brought to our attention that uh, despite the, uh, the housing boom in the Twin Cities, and particularly with apartments, the percentage of affordable housing units being built for lower-income folk has been almost non-existent. There are fewer and fewer affordable housing options in our metro as the percentage of those living in poverty is increasing. Just days ago, in fact, you may have read that the affluent residents of Carver uh, have taken an impassioned stand, at least some of them, opposing an affordable housing option in their community. A community, by the way, utterly void of anything resembling affordable housing. Uh, not in my backyard, you know the saying. NIMBY, not in my backyard. Too often, we simply despise those who Jesus holds up today. Here in the richest nation the planet has ever seen, uh, recent reports uh, suggest that 50% of our children are living at the poverty level or below. Our incarceration rates are way, way beyond anyone else in at least the developed world. Strangers are increasingly demonized, and how in the world will we take care of the sick, including ourselves, when we get sick in the future? We simply don't have good ways to move forward. I hope that the relevance of Matthew 25 is apparent. This tells us who God is and who we are supposed to be, and it refuses to let us look the other way from a broken humanity. Lastly, um, let's address very briefly the elephant in the room. Um, perhaps you already felt we did address the elephant, I don't know. There's another elephant. If God is judging us by our compassion and actions on behalf of the least of these, where does that leave me? This all doesn't sound very Lutheran. Am I a sheep or a goat? An honest reading of this text for most of us probably leaves us on shaky ground here. This is the sort of thing that makes repentance not just something we're supposed to do. It makes it something that, after reading this, we may feel we urgently need to do. Perhaps on a day like this, we can authentically say to ourselves, if not for the grace of God, so go I. No Bible passages should ever be taken in isolation from the rest of Scripture. Matthew 25 tells us much about the character of God and what God expects of us. It tells us little about forgiveness. And yet earlier in Matthew, in the parable about forgiving debt, we learn of the capacity of God to forgive an infinite number of times. Well, after today, I think we cling to those verses just a bit more, don't we? Amen.